The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing in healthcare. I'm glad to be back on Barron's Live with Barron's healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, one of the best in the business, in my opinion. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about today, Josh, so let's dive in. Good to talk to you. Very kind. <laughs> well, I mean every word I say. Well, a lot has been happening in the COVID world of late. There's now a new Omicron variant heading our way. In fact, I think it's already here. And a second booster is now available for people 50 and above. So let's start with the big picture. Where do things stand with cases, hospitalizations, and the other statistics we watch? Yeah, so we you know we haven't done this together in a few weeks, and, and things right. have ch- changed a lot. I mean, you know, the good news is that in the U.S., hospitalizations and deaths um, are at the lowest level we've seen in months, and that nationwide cases are also still trending downward. So that's all good. I mean, nationally, we're in we're in quite a good place relative to where we were, you know, three months ago. Um, you know, the bad news is, as everybody knows by now, there's every sign of a new increase in cases in parts of the country, driven most likely by the arrival of a new version of the Omicron variant, which is being referred to as BA2. Um, you know, the understanding is that it is more contagious than Omicron. You know, we were told that uh, Delta was like the most contagious thing ever, and, and, and Omicron, uh, you know, original Omicron was more contagious than that. Well, BA2 is even more contagious than that. I think comparisons are hard, but I've seen it compared, you know, to some of the most contagious viruses that we're um, previously aware of. But uh, on the like other, a wave is coming, a big surge. Well, on the other side, there's a couple of you know things weighing on the other on the other end of this. First of all, it seems like it does not cause any more severe disease than original Omicron, which is good because original Omicron seemed to cause less severe disease than Delta and many of the other variants we've seen. Um, the other thing is that a lot of people in this country just had Omicron. There's some notion that there that there's going to be some cross protection. So, you know, the experience has has differed dramatically from country to country um, as BA2 has, you know, moved across Europe and Asia and other parts of the world. Um, And I don't think we really know yet what it's going to be like here, whether this will be, uh, you know, a surge that is serious and causes an increase in hospitalizations and death in a serious way, or if it's, you know, more of a, um, just a blip that causes, you know, some case increases, but no real impact on, on, on hospitalizations. Um, we don't know yet. And, you know, if it's if it's the latter, you know, that's pretty good. And that could be some sort of indication of where this pandemic is going, you know, towards a situation where we do have periodic increases in cases, but there's enough sort of background immunity in the population due to vaccines and prior infection that, um, you know, people aren't getting that sick. But we, we just don't know what's going to happen. And, and I think we'll know pretty soon because, you know, as of um, well, the CDC now says that it estimates that more than half of COVID cases in the U.S. last week were caused by BA2. That's up from 
39% the prior week. And in parts of the, the Northeast, BA2 um, caused more than 70% of cases last week, according to these estimates the CDC puts out. Um, and it's been over half for a number of weeks. And in those places, hospitalizations in the Northeast remain low, but cases are up. Um, over the past two weeks, cases are up 65% in New York, 64% in Connecticut, 45% in Massachusetts. The absolute numbers are low, compared, particularly compared to the Omicron surge just a couple of weeks ago or months ago. Although, you know, it's hard to know exactly what to make of case numbers these days, particularly given the relatively wide availability of um, at-home tests, which notionally are not reported at all or, or often um, as positives to the government and wouldn't be included in those numbers. You know, people who look at wastewater, which is another way of tracking the spread of the virus, are certainly seeing an increase. But we won't really know what's happening or how big a deal it is until we start seeing an impact on hospitalizations and, and you know whether it's it's a serious impact or not and maybe we won't see too much of an impact if it's really not as as severe as some prior variants but i think what this tells us is we are not out of the woods yet by any stretch yeah and you know you know we talked about this um in in, in offline conversations that um you know i think if you asked lots of people, uh, you know, in February, what the direction of the pandemic would be, people would have said was going to be, people would have said, you know, um, we're going to see a lull into the fall, and then we'll see an increase in the fall. And then, um, and then, you know, that'll be the beginning of sort of a seasonal uh, COVID, or sort of, a, of COVID becoming a seasonal threat. Um, you know, and that was, I think, the baseline estimate that a lot of people had. And that seems like it's, not necessarily the case anymore. Um, and it's hard to know what to expect. You know, people have made much of the fact that while, while many people are going to restaurants again and traveling, office capacity or capacity utilization is about 40%. People are not going back to the office in great numbers. And I wonder if things would be even worse on the COVID front if we had gone back to the office in a big way. Yeah, that's hard to say. Um, and it's sort of also hard to disaggregate, you know, the change in lifestyles and routine yeah. that have been, you know, baked in after two years of enforced at home work um, from, you know, the actual virus situation in terms of how that impacts um, whether or not people are going in. It's definitely something to keep an eye on, though. So tell me about the second booster. It's been approved, but some of the language around it has been equivocal. What are you hearing in your reporting? So yeah, that you know, again, uh, people I think had expected that the next booster round would really wait until the fall when the Omicron specific boosters were ready. Um, that that's not happened. The 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 Pfizer and Moderna asked for a fourth dose authorization just a couple of weeks ago. The FDA and CDC moved very quickly on Tuesday. They uh, first CDC the, the FDA authorized, and then the CDC recommended a second booster of uh, either Pfizer or Moderna. For people age 50 and up. Now, you know, we should say, and, and everybody was pretty clear, the evidence supporting this is not particularly robust. Um, there are some studies from Israel showing a benefit. There are other studies showing efficacy after a booster dose, after the first booster dropped pretty quickly, um, or sorry, protection from the first booster drops pretty quickly. What's clear here is that the government is trying to react very quickly to the rise of BA2. And they, and they, they talked about that somewhat directly on a press call with Peter Marks, who's sort of the head vaccines guy at the FDA, in addition to other jobs he, he has there. Um, uh, 
you know, the previously other major changes to the um, authorizations and recommendations for these COVID shots have come after meetings of the outside advisory committees to the FDA and CDC. Neither the FDA nor CDC advisors met on this. Um, and I think they signaled late last year they wouldn't be meeting as often. Uh, Marx was asked why he didn't convene them. He said it was a pretty straightforward decision. But, uh, you know, I think it at least it jumped out to me that some of the language, uh, at least in the press release, was sort of equivocal. Marx said in a statement that a booster, quote, could help increase protection for higher risk people. I, I think the CDC's press release was a little bit more, um, was, was clear that they think it, it's, it can be, you know, very important, especially important for people age 65 and up. 65 and up, sorry, and page 50, people age 50 and up with certain medical conditions. Um, the Marx had said on his press call that they didn't want to make distinctions in the authorization between high risk and not high risk people in those age groups to try to simplify things. And because so many of the people in the 50 and up age group are at high risk for one reason or another. Um, anyway, these boosters are available now. Um, and uh, people have to have had... Uh, it has to four, four months need to have elapsed since your second booster. And what Marx basically said on the call was that they are um, trying to give people an option to get further protection in, in advance of another wave, if, if such another wave comes. Sometimes simplifying things makes them more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I'm sensing here. You mentioned the possibility of an Omicron-specific booster in the fall. I wonder if that was part of the thinking that that some people may delay getting this fourth booster until they get the Omicron specific one. Is that still on the table? And isn't it possible that it might be even irrelevant by then? Yeah, well, so so it is still on the table. The, the companies are testing them. They're testing combinations of Omicron specific plus the original, what they call the prototype booster. Um, uh, the FDA's marks said that, it, you know, getting this booster now, a fourth dose now wouldn't preclude you from getting the Omicron specific booster when it's ready. The fact is they're not ready yet. Um, I think they probably would have preferred to do them now, but but the tests are not done yet. I think it's a pretty good question, um, you know, whether we'll still want an Omicron specific booster in the fall, but it's sort of unanswerable now, right? It sort of depends on the course of the pandemic, whether the um, dominant strains at that point are still in the Omicron family. I mean, you know, you got to remember Omicron was, is not related to Delta. It kind of came, it stem, broke out from sort of an earlier, it descends from an earlier version of the virus. Um, so, you know, if we have some totally, you know, variant X show up in, uh, in late summer, um, we're probably going to have a different conversation about an Omicron specific booster than um, we would if that doesn't happen. And if, you know, BA2 is still dominant at that point. Um, the FDA is holding an advisory committee hearing on next Wednesday to talk about this specific thing. So we'll have a clear sense of what the FDA is thinking and what these scientific advisors are thinking then. And that'll be a pretty important meeting um, that we'll be watching very closely. One other thing, you know, just to mention, because people are always asking about this uh, when we talk about COVID vaccines, is that, um, you know, there's still no COVID vaccine for children aged under five. Pfizer, you know, they had had an advisory committee hearing. It was scheduled. It was postponed as they wait for um, third dose data, which should come in April. So that, that's uh, April starts tomorrow. So we'll see. Um, Moderna also now says it has positive data on its vaccine for kids aged six months to six years 
old. What was interesting about that is that the you know the the antibody response inspired um, you know, elicited by the vaccine seems strong. However, the efficacy was in the 30s and 40 percentile range, uh, depending on the age groups. Um, and that's, you know, not so high. It's, it's not so bad in terms of um, how it compares to other age groups in the Omicron era in which we're now in. However, um, you know, it, it may end up being a tough decision for the FDA and for the regulators, you know, that that's objectively not a particularly high number. Um, and this is not a group that's at particularly high risk for serious outcomes. So it, it may be a, a tough call on as to whether or not they're actually going to authorize this. I was thinking if you thought the discussion around the fourth booster was complicated, wait till you get to the discussion around this vaccine for children. So yeah, and people are correctly, you know, much even more concerned, you know, about any potential side effects in um, these pediatric age groups than they are in the adult age groups. So, so it's, it's very fraught and important to, you know, proceed with caution. Right. Couldn't agree more. So let's talk about payment for future COVID vaccines. Earlier this month, the Democrats pulled about $15 billion in COVID funds from a big spending bill. What are the implications of that? Is the government going to run out of money to support COVID vaccine delivery? And will private markets be ready to step in if necessary? Yeah, so this is a, there's a lot of implications there, but let's focus on the, the implications for vaccines. So the, okay. the White House, as, as soon as this ended, as soon as this happened, began to ring alarm bells and say they're going to run out of money to buy COVID vaccines. And in fact... All right, is um, that political or is that real? Well, so um, that was the question. Uh, the, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a group that does a lot of healthcare reporting and, and analysis, they did their own um, you know, number crunching. And they, they say that, yes, under most scenarios, there are not enough doses for all people to get a fourth dose that are in the government stockpile right now. And the government doesn't have, you know, contracts for delivery for in 2022 for Pfizer or Moderna, I don't think. I mean, what they have now is what they have and that there's no money been, been allocated for more doses. Um, Kaiser said, so Kaiser's analysis came out before the authorization for 50 and up. They laid out a number of scenarios. They said there's not enough doses now for all adults stage 50 and up to get a fourth dose. Now, of course, not adults, not all adults will get well, those, right. but, you know, we're talking about childhood vaccines. I mean, there, there, there's going to be, as um, as the authorizations expand, there'll be demand from different populations. And what this highlights is that we, we could be seeing a shift to a private market, you know, quicker than any other country. Um, certainly more, lots of other governments out there are buying more vaccine uh, doses from these companies. In the U.S., all COVID vaccine doses that have been administered so far have been bought by the federal government and um, distributed for free. Um, you know, the, the, now that these vaccines are not just authorized under an EUA, but fully approved um, in certain age groups, there's nothing keeping the companies from selling them in the way that you sell any other drug um, or, or, or vaccine. And Moderna, in fact, has said that its commercial team, which it's built, it's never you know, it didn't have anything, any commercial products before the pandemic, but it's built one over the past couple of years. And he said that they say that 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 commercial team is now working under the assumption that there won't be more funding for government purchases. Um, so so they're getting ready to sell this vaccine. You know, the, it's could likely boost the price. Uh, I was just wondering, what does that mean for pricing? It could boost the price. I'm not sure that it's sort of an unalloyed, unalloyed good for 
Moderna. I mean, it means that Moderna would be competing in a commercial market for with with Pfizer. You know, Pfizer, um, as we've written about in the past, I mean, this very large company, very mature commercial operation, 100 years, you know, been selling drugs for more than 100 years. Um, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the challenge that Moderna will eventually face competing with Pfizer in the commercial markets. This just accelerates that um, a little bit um, to a, to an earlier point than I think anybody might have expected. And what happens with the government programs, Medicare and Medicaid? Yeah, uh, I, I think those those allocations happen, you know, that, that purchasing happens differently. Um, these, this is sort of a separate allocation that, you know, not, not through, um, you know, those purchases. So I imagine those government programs would, would buy the vaccine in the same way that they buy any other vaccine. All right. Interesting situation. So I want to move on to COVID antibodies. Before I do, I'll remind listeners that we're taking questions at the end of the call. So please type them in. So Josh, there've been a number of developments since we last spoke regarding COVID antibodies. Who's working on what and what does it mean for the company's shares? Yeah, so I think what we've learned over the past few months is that although these monoclonal antibody therapies have been, you know, very useful and likely saved a lot of lives in terms of, um, you know, it, 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 uh, as a treatment for COVID-19, there are substantial drawbacks. I mean, companies spend a lot of money and time developing these things. And what we've learned is that they don't always translate so well from one um variant of the virus to the next. So in January, the FDA revoked um, the authorizations for a number of monoclonal antibodies because they didn't work against Omicron. There was only one left standing that was um, Citrovimab from uh, Veer Therapeutics and GlaxoSmithKline. And now the FDA says that Citrovimab can be used in places where BA2 is widespread because it doesn't seem to work as well against BA2. Now there's a newer monoclonal antibody therapeutic from Eli Lilly called um, Bebtelovimab. That I love how it rolls off your tongue. <laughs> and that is thought to work against BA2, so so it, it, it's still out there. But, you know, it, it demonstrates the, the drawbacks here of, of this class of COVID therapeutics. Luckily, it, it appears as though the antivirals, um, particularly Pfizer's antiviral Paxlovid, is active against um, BA2. Um, so, we you know, we still have that, and we didn't have that for much of the time in which these monoclonal antibody therapies were really the right. response. Um, there was another story earlier this week. Um, there's a small company called Adagio Therapeutics. They developed an antibody therapy uh, against COVID. They, they say that it works well as both a um, treatment and a pre, pre and post exposure prophylaxis. Interesting. There's pre exposure prophylaxis already authorized from AstraZeneca called Shield. I don't think it's authorized for post-exposure prophylaxis. The problem here is that, um, so the efficacy was about 70% all around. The problem here is that most of these trials were run before Omicron. And there was like a one arm of one of these trials was run during Omicron and it didn't look so good. This is a company that in November, they put out a big statement saying their antibody would work well against Omicron. Stock went up a lot. And then they did a bit of lab work and didn't turn out so well. They said, in fact, maybe it won't work well against Omicron. The stock fell a lot. A lot of room for manipulation here. They, they now have a. I mean, I mean, I think they were they were speaking initially based on their understanding of the mechanism of action and sort of how mm-hmm. the virus worked, but then they did some more work and you know they, they reversed themselves. They they have a new CEO now. Um, I think the question for them is, uh, you know, <laughs> if if the how big a problem the efficacy against Omicron 
is um, going to continue to be. But the stock did climb pretty sharply on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Well, also, now we have to worry about the BA2 variant. So that Well, may- yeah, and in fact, th- there was a, an, a separate outside researcher who looked at a number of antibodies um, against BA2 in, in, in the lab, and um, they suggested that um, it, it will not work well against BA2. So that's an additional concern. The company didn't address that in their press release. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a big issue. <laughs> so good that a lot of companies are working on antibodies. So on another topic, we talk a lot on Barron's Live about treatments for Alzheimer's, which have been consistently disappointing. But ALS is another disease in search of treatments. And that landscape too seems littered with disappointments, including the latest setback, a drug developed by, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Amelix Pharmaceuticals, the ticker is AMLX. Tell us what went wrong and what it means for the company. So there's been a long saga saga here that that, that had a big big moment yesterday. This is a, a small biotech called Amelix. They have a drug. It's actually a combination of two other drugs they believe is an effective treatment for ALS, which, as you say, you know, deadly condition, no cure and, um, you know, desperately really need one desperate need of, of, of a treatment here. What happened yesterday is that the FDA convened its advisory committee, the same advisory committee, in fact, that considered that met, last met to consider Biogen's Alzheimer's treatment, Agile, um, to, to think about whether about this, the trial um, that Amelix ran of, of this drug. And, you know, the, the FDA, Amelix had had at one point, said that the FDA had told it to run a second trial of this drug before submitting um, for approval. Then Amelix sort of changed course and said, actually, the FDA wants us to ask for approval now while the second trial is ongoing. In fact, the FDA, when they spoke at the meeting and in their briefing documents, they were very, very critical of the trial um, and thought that it didn't, I mean, they, they were very, their take on the trial was very negative, a lot of concerns about how it was run and what it actually showed However, there's a lot of patient pressure here because of the unmet need. Um, and the FDA, it sounded like, really wanted to give a full airing so that the patient's concerns could be heard. And the FDA said, you know, that they understand that patients have said that even if the, be- the benefit is small, it might be worthwhile to give them access because of the seriousness of the condition. And, you know, patients who spoke yesterday gave very heartfelt and compelling testimony. The, the counterargument, as some of the panelists noted, is that approving a drug that doesn't work very well makes it harder to develop drugs that do work. In the end, the vote was six to four um, against uh, against the notion that the drug that the trial proved the drug was efficacious, and that's I think narrower at least than I expected, given the highly critical nature of the FDA's comments. Um, and I think it really sort of throws it back to the FDA, and and now the FDA is just going to have to choose. There's a lot of patient pressure here. There's also a lot of scrutiny because of the heavy criticism with which the Alzheimer's decision was made by the same people within the FDA, the same office um, was met. Uh, so so um, they the FDA is due to make a decision by late June, and that will be heavily, heavily watched. So Amelix's stock has been down quite a bit. What does the company well, do from here? So on Monday, the, the stock uh, fell about 30, 36% because... Um, because the FDA put out briefing documents that showed the agency was quite negative um, on the trial. Uh, it's down about 10%. It was held, yeah, there was no trading yesterday because of the meeting. It's down at about 10% today. 
you know, now it's just a question of um, what happens at the um, when, when the FDA makes its final decision yeah. in late June. At the same time, they're also going for approval in Europe and they're running this third trial. So it's not an end of the road by any means. If the FDA doesn't say yes now, you know, they, they get positive results on the third trial. Um, I'm sorry, on the second trial um, that could turn things around. And um, in addition, you know, there, there's always a chance they could get approved um, in one. Right. Of the right. But the game won't be over. If I, I shouldn't say game, this is deadly serious stuff. Yeah. The trajectory of the drug could continue even if the FDA says no in June. Yeah, in Europe or, you know, after this ne next trial is completed. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Fingers crossed there. I hope that the trial works out well. So you've got a story hot off the digital presses, so to speak, this morning on the outlook for biotech drugs. They've been big losers this year, but investors really shouldn't give up on the sector. To the contrary, it may be a good time to take another look, given that so many stocks are so cheap. Give us a summary of the story and sort of the nut of your argument. Yeah, I mean, the basic idea here is that biotech climbed, um, as people will remember, it was very hot from early 2020 through February 2021. And, and it's and if you look at the the ETF that tracks that's that sort of equally weighted in, in the small mid and large cap biotech. So uh, space, it's about, it's, it's down about 50% since February 8th of 2021, which is really the peak. There's lots of reasons why it was an overheated sector. There was a lot of pandemic era interest that faded. Um, there have been a ton of companies that have gone public uh, over the past few years, really extraordinary pace, probably, you know, a lot of companies that maybe should have spent a bit more time on the private markets, um, uh, but the bottom line is that valuations now are very low. There are lots of companies in the XBI, um, in, in, in this biotech ETF I mentioned, trading for two times cash, three times cash. Um, you know, two times cash is what's seen as the bottom. It's now very much not. There are companies trading for less than two times cash. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, the thesis, the basic notion of biotech does remain strong. I mean, there, there are advances in in science that are quite remarkable and and it's i think the you know the the, the success of moderna and biontech at bringing the covid 19 vaccines out very quickly shows that smaller companies are able to you know bring to market and, and develop successfully these cutting edge technologies in a way that big pharma just can't um or or, or doesn't always always do um so you know we argued that uh it it, it might be a moment to take a look at or I argued that it might be a moment to take a look at the XBI, the CTF, um, you know, not as a short term. clarify, that's the spider S&P biotech ETF. Yes, thank you. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, it's 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 a moment to, to take a look at that because um, it's, it's down a lot. And um, and uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. It's it's down a lot. And, and you know, oh, sorry, right. It's, it's not a short-term investment. I think there's a lot of reasons why it could take a year or two for the sector to come back and a lot going on, you know, in the world and with the economy that's that, that would, would, would keep investors from coming back to biotech. But I think, you know, having a, um, it's, it's not, it, it makes sense to, to be optimistic about biotech over the long term. So do you recommend buying the ETF or do you recommend buying, um, biotech stocks, individual uh, stocks. You know, I think as a as a general matter, it's never a great idea for an individual investor to make bets on individual 
um, small cap, mid cap biotech stocks. You know, that's not what the pros do. They, they buy a basket um, because they know that, you know, most of these stocks or most of these companies don't work out. Biotech is hard. Science is hard. doesn't always work. Um, but uh, over the long term, hopefully, you know, you get a few really, really big winners that make up for the everything else. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that individual investors should be out there like trying to build the basket themselves. Uh, I think the ETFs make more sense. Right. Unless they have some specific knowledge of the sector. They're yeah, right. I mean, you, you got to know that you're, you're up against, you know, PhDs uh, <laughs> or, right. or, or rooms full of PhDs who, who really get into the science here. Right. And they're also actively managed funds that invest in the sector. That's true, too that are worth a look, but more expensive than the ETFs. So let's move on to some listener questions. We've got quite a lot today. Lori asks about your thoughts about investing in Pfizer, Moderna, J&J, AbbVie, and Abbott. And I know you've written a lot about Moderna. So why don't you fill us in there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the <laughs> you know, the case for Moderna is similar to the case for biotech. You know, the, the stock is down a lot since early last year or the middle of last year, I guess. Um, but, you know, in the long term, the, the company still looks really promising. Uh, I think that mRNA technology has a long way to go. Um, they have uh, a lot of vaccine programs going, a lot of shots on goal and a lot of stuff outside of vaccines. Um, you know, uh, uh, listeners, if they're interested, can look back. I had a feature making the case for Moderna in, I believe it was late January, and I think it still holds up. All right. Thank you. So Thomas asks, what impact, if any, do the recent opioid settlements have on the healthcare industry? You've written a bit about that. Yeah. You know, there have been a bunch. In fact, I think yesterday, uh, a number of, of companies that, um, including, I think, CVS and Teva made settlements with Florida. There was a larger national settlement involving some of the drug distributors. I mean, look, for, for a lot of these companies, um, the opioid litigation has been an overhang for a long time, and this could clear that up um, and, and, and clarify how much money they will have to pay out. And that makes it easier for investors to look at those stocks. I think, you know, from another perspective, I think the opioid settlements are a reminder of the opioid crisis that's only getting worse in this country. And also Sadly, you know, yeah. separately, the, the importance of developing non-opioid painkillers. In fact, there was News on that today. I haven't looked at it closely, but I be believe Vertex had some positive data either today or yesterday on a on a new non-opioid painkiller they're developing, which you know that could be a great thing for society if it if it works out. For sure. And I know you'll be continuing to follow that story. So Kyle asks, I'm hearing more frequently about interest in MA, that's mergers and acquisitions in healthcare. What insights can you share in terms of types of companies likely to be acquirers and acquired? and different segments that might see M&A. I think we talked about this a bit during our healthcare roundtable last fall. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I think the, the nature of M&A is that it's impossible to predict. Um, you know, it happens based on macro factors, but also on, you know, when a company happens to be looking and when another company happens to be looking to be bought. The, um, I think there, there, was, there, there were, as people will remember, expectations that there would be a lot of M&A early in 2022, especially in the pharmaceutical and biotech space, because so many of the big pharma companies had so much cash on their balance sheets and valuations were down. That didn't happen. And valuations have sunk further. I don't know what that means about what will happen. Um, there, there was a relatively big deal this week where United Health Group, 
acquired a, a big company for like $5 billion that um, does uh, home care uh, across the country, um, which I thought was interesting. That may be where you see some more of the action. Certainly, it's not been a great year for growth stocks until the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And a lot of biotech stocks are definitely growth stocks. Mm, yeah. yeah. So related to that, Jory asks, have you seen a change in the investment climate in terms of capital deployment in 2022 versus last year? You mentioned that last year was a huge year for biotech IPOs. What's the landscape looking like now? Yeah, I mean, I think things have cooled down a Clearly, um, although I, I there there was um, I think last week a couple of of biotechs surprisingly uh, you know raised a lot of cash quite quickly, which suggested maybe there's a bit more interest. I'm not sure I have a fully thought out answer to this, but um, but that's something to think about. It's a lot of money sloshing around. Whether it goes to biotech or not remains to be seen. But Josh, if they read your story, it just might. <laughs> so, all right, we'll close with a question from Steve. He's heard that the that until the entire world is vaccinated, it will be hard to prevent the development of new variants. And if that's the case, do you think we're just going to see new variants continuously through the year versus COVID becoming seasonal like the flu? I think you talked about this earlier, but... Any more thoughts about that? I think that's the million dollar question. Um, the latter part of it, uh, I I don't know the answer. It's something that we're we're thinking about and 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 trying to come up with answers about. But I, I think it, you know, there's different modelers who have different ideas about what's going to happen. I think that one big problem is that the nature of the emergency of these variants is that it seems to be random. Um, so it, it's, it's it's not easy to predict. But yeah, as I said before, I. I don't think that we're going to be, um, or at least it doesn't seem like the baseline expectation anymore is that we will have a seasonal virus in the near term. Um, I also, you know, as what he says in the beginning about, um, you know, waiting until you know, vaccinated. Until the, the world, world is vaccinated. Yeah. You know, the, the, the vaccines don't seem to be as good as preventing transmission as we thought they were. And um, does that mean that vaccinating the whole world will stop the emergency of new variants? I don't know. That's a good question for a virologist. They seem to be most effective in stopping serious disease. Exactly. exactly. Or, or stopping yeah. the disease from growing more serious. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know what effect they have on, on, you know, on the spread of, or the development of new variants. I, I, I imagine it's less than we originally thought, but, but, but I, I guess that's probably not a question for me. Anyhow. Steve, I think you got to the heart of the matter. So, Josh, I want to thank you very much for your participation today. I always learn a lot listening to you, and I'm sure our listeners do too. Really enjoyed I want, it. I want to thank our audience for listening as well. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, MarketWatch financial crime reporter Lucas Alpert will speak with Ben Carlson, the director of institutional wealth management at Britholtz Wealth Management and the author of Don't Fall for It, A Short History of Financial Scams. They'll be discussing the business lessons that can be learned from some of the biggest frauds in business history. Thanks again, everyone, for listening in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.